Kia This program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Wellington Access Radio, make your voice heard. Kia ora, Wellington. I'm Laura Kewen. This is B-Side Stories, stories of the people who make Wellington tick. And I'm chatting today to climate scientist James Renwick. He's a professor at Victoria University. He's the winner of the Prime Minister's Science Prize for Communication. And if you hear a climate scientist on Morning Report or on the TV in New Zealand, it's probably him. Uh, kia ora, James. Thank you for chatting to me. Kia ora, Laura. Lovely to have this conversation with you. So um, I wanted to talk a little bit about, about your background. Um, where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in the very middle of the South Island uh, in central Canterbury, a little village called Springfield. If you've ever taken the train from Christchurch over to the west coast, you will have gone through Springfield, but you can blink and miss it, that's for sure. <laughs> okay, and were you sciencey as a young person? Yeah, I was pretty sciencey, pretty nerdy as a young person. I, I, I've always been a uh, big fan of mathematics, so I was a bit of a math nerd and I had a telescope and I was into astronomy and, and what do you know, looking at the clouds and the weather and yeah, so I was thinking about science quite a lot of the time. And weather was sort of the first thing that you got interested in, right? Well, it was one of the first things I got interested in, yeah. And living in Canterbury, um, you are exposed to some pretty dynamic stuff. They have these really hot days with the nor'wester and then big cold changes, thunderstorms, snow in the winter, um, all, all sorts of extreme weather, actually. And that did interest me. Not, not, so, not so overtly. It was something I just had around me, and it wasn't until I was a bit older that I really started to get interested in the weather as a as a topic of um, study or as a profession. Um, how did that come about? Was it in your university or? Um, that's right, yeah. So I did a, a degree in pure mathematics at Canterbury. That was my first degree a long time ago now. So I was doing all this pretty esoteric stuff about number theory and st that sort of thing, topology, you name it. Uh, but I did realise I needed to get a job <laughs> because I, I wasn't going to be doing a master's or a PhD right then. And at that time in my last year at Canterbury, um, a, a recruiter from the Met Service was doing the rounds of the universities and I saw this little advertisement for um, you know, information sessions. And I thought, oh, oh, that just generally, I thought, oh, that could be interesting. I'll go along and talk to this person. And that's really how it started. It was... What, accidental really. I was doing some, some of the study I was doing related to meteorology was fluid dynamics, so sort of differential equations. It was quite theoretical but it, I could see it would have applications and I thought oh this is something that I'm interested in from a kind of science-y mathematical point of view but something that was quite practical as well. So it, it, it did interest me and I realised that it did kind of hark back to my uh, childhood, you know, where I grew up and there was a lot of interesting weather, which I did think about, but not in a terrifically structured way when I was 10 years old. <laughs> okay, well, and you became a weather forecaster, is that right? That's right, yeah. So I um, I applied for a, a job as a trainee weather forecaster at the Met Service and was accepted. So that was my first role. I had spent a year 
being trained and, and all the ins and outs of how to do weather forecasts, how to observe the weather properly and all those things. And yeah, I spent a couple of hours, oh sorry, I spent a couple of years, <laughs> yeah, like may have felt like a couple of hours, yeah, so much fun, um, as a weather forecaster. So this is, um, yeah, getting on for 40 years ago now actually, early 80s. Um, and I did the did the rounds from sort of starting off with aviation forecasting that's predicting pretty short-term things you know what's what's happening over the next few hours at at the various airports around the country and then moved into marine forecasting so I was looking at um, predicting you know gales in the open ocean and what the conditions in various coastal areas around the country uh, were doing and back in those days the Met Service still broadcast directly onto national radio, so there was a broadcast booth in the forecast room, and you would go in there, like when I was marine forecasting, um, there was a, a broadcast to um, mariners, to fishers, uh, about four in the morning, I think, before anyone went out to sea. And I can remember being in the booth and talking to the Radio New Zealand person and then announcing the weather the marine forecast on radio and that was a pretty cool experience for someone you know in their early 20s suddenly you're on national radio may not have been many people listening at four in the morning (laughs) but still it was it was great fun I really enjoyed that um do you think that you have more haters uh, as a weather forecaster or as a climate scientist (laughs) wow what a great question (laughs) One thing I really remember from my training year at the Met Service was, um, and back then the Met Service was part of the Ministry of Transport, and people from head office, we had a uh, operational, I mean, a, sorry, a, um, a psychologist, um, industrial psychologist, I guess you would say, come to visit us one day and talked about um, dealing with abuse really and how you know weather forecasters you're going to get a lot of flack from people and people are going to be unhappy with what you say whatever you say and we always get it wrong and all that kind of thing and it was really interesting to have this session on how to deal with uh, negative feedback and how to develop a somewhat thicker skin so (laughs) that was recognized to be an issue back then I was never really exposed to much of that, I'll have to say, as, as a weather forecaster. I have been exposed to some of those sorts of things as a climate scientist, so maybe maybe it's it's more <laughs> more of an occupational hazard for a climate researcher than a than a weather forecaster. I'm not not entirely sure, but it's it's out there certainly. <laughs> it's good you had that little background to to help you out when it came to it. Oh, indeed, yeah. So being in the forecast room and and having to deal with the public, like people would phone up, and I assume they still do, uh, if if they had a question or a problem, they could call the forecasters and talk about things. And especially doing that, because it's a 24-hour operation, you would work on shifts, and sometimes I'd be working from, you know, in the evening right through till the early hours of the morning, and I think people may not have had much to do in the evening they'd call up the Met Service and and you know after dark things tended to quieten down and there was still work to do but you had a bit of free time so I can remember talking to a few members of the public at you know nine or ten o'clock at night about the ins and outs of weather forecasting and how we do it and whether it's right or wrong and so again that was all kind of good training for (laughs) communicating. 
Um, how did that role sort of progress into, I guess, your teaching and research at Victoria? Yeah, that's that's been quite a journey. So after I spent a bit of time as a weather forecaster, I did get interested in um, research on weather prediction. So I got into looking at ways to predict the weather using statistics. You might, these days you'd talk about big data and machine learning and all that. It was kind of uh, a version of that, using statistical techniques. And, and I developed a New Zealand's first operational system to forecast the maximum temperature tomorrow in the main centres based on a statistical model. And I'm still pretty proud of that. That was my first bit of research. And it just grew from there. I really, because of my background in mathematics and so on, I got really interested in all this. Ended up doing a master's degree in statistics at Victoria while I was working at the Met Service and worked on a whole lot of different uh, ways to approach using statistics to, to predict, including writing a bit of software for KZ7 that went on the America's Cup race in 1987. I wrote a little prediction model to predict the variations in the wind out on the course. It worked okay, we didn't win in the end, <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was a really interesting experience. So I did that for a few years, and then after the Masters decided I should do a PhD. So I ended up going to the US for that, and that really, even though I'd started off in that thinking about weather and how predictable the weather is, turned out that was related to whether or not there was an El Nino going on or what the state of the whole global climate was. And I hadn't really thought about that kind of thing before, but it really moved me into thinking about the big picture. And you can't just think about the day-to-day -day weather. That's actually affected by the, the seasonal or the annual climate. So I started moving into looking at the climate rather than the weather. And when I came back to New Zealand, I... Uh, was employed in Niwa and I worked there for many years on seasonal forecasts and how the climate varies over seasons, years and, and on to the climate change kind of timescales, looking at decades and, and centuries into the future and into the past. So um, when I finally made the move to Victoria a few years ago, um, I guess I brought that with me, and that's that's what I lecture on now, mostly on climate variations, climate change. But it's very nice. One of the classes I teach at undergraduate level, I've gone back to some of the weather stuff. So I talk about how the weather varies and how and what a weather map looks like, how you do a weather forecast, what the clouds can tell you, all that kind of thing. So um, yeah, I've still got a Still got a foot in that camp. I don't think I'll ever stop being interested in looking at the clouds and thinking about the weather. And has been being a communicator and um, sort of a science communicator, has that come quite naturally to you? Well, it has actually, yeah. I can remember the very first time I gave a, a talk to an audience, and this was part of the training at the Met Service, and the audience was just the other trainees, really, and a, a couple of the staff. But I was absolutely petrified. I can still remember just being almost unable to speak. I was so frightened of talking in front of this little audience. So, you know, I know a lot of people find public speaking just, you know, <laughs> the, the most horrible thing they can think of. And obviously I don't see it that way. But at the very beginning, I did feel pretty nervous about 
speaking in front of people. I think um, I got over that pretty quickly for whatever reason and found that I just just took to it. And when I was at Niwa in the 1990s, um, there was a, a group set up to do these regular forecasts of the next season, the next few months. Every month we'd put out a new statement. And I started getting my name on the press releases, so reporters would call me up. And I just got in the groove of speaking to a journalist, you know, with a microphone or even a camera. And, yeah, I just found it easy. I, and I do find it easy, especially with a, uh, a journalist. I know a lot of people are nervous about standing in front of a camera, but I only ever think about, well, I'm talking to a person, not necessarily to some large audience on the tally. Um, so I just treat it like a conversation always, and, and I find that a good way to, to think about it, and, and it helps me to just be relaxed, basically. So I, I feel very lucky. I am a bit of a natural at doing this, not through any great um, efforts on my part. It's just the way it's worked out. And you were saying to me before that... Um there's been a certain urgency or a, like a certain mission to the communication that you're doing around climate change now. Can you talk about, I guess, um, the importance that you think that has? Yes, that's right. I, I first started looking at climate change and what it might mean for New Zealand about 30 years ago. And at the time, this was about the time that the whole intergovernmental panel on climate change effort started and all that. And even then... Um, was obviously an issue but it, it did seem like it was quite far off and it would be you know a hundred years before we'd really have to get worried so it was more of a an interesting scientific question you know how would rainfall and temperature and so on change over New Zealand uh, so I treated it as just another piece of research but then as time went on through the 1990s and we got to the Kyoto Protocol and so on and it was obvious that um, nobody was doing anything about the issue and the rate of emissions of greenhouse gases just went up and up and up. You know, We've been emitting this stuff into the air for 250 years but half of the total has gone up in the last 25 years. So in the, in the time I started working on climate change you know we've had half more than half of the, the total emission of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere that humanity's achieved. So it's become more and more urgent and as I've looked at it harder it's become more obvious just how uh, damaging it could be for human society and for you know the things we hold dear basically so as I've gone along um, I've um, I guess I felt more um, motivation to speak to the public and to just tell people what I know and to try to motivate action on climate change. Um, I think a lot of people, you know, if, it, if it's not your day job, you don't have to think about it, and you don't think about it because you've got a lot of other things to think about. So I do feel as a person who does work on this stuff on a regular basis, I have a bit of a duty to pass on what I know to people to make sure that as many people in New Zealand know what the issues are, you know, what we stand to lose if we don't take action, and then, well, what can we do? You know, how can we reduce our emissions? How can we help other countries to do the same? So, yeah, it's become a bit of a calling for me, I'll have to say, and I, 
I'm usually ready to say yes to just about anybody who wants me to come and talk, which isn't always popular at home. <laughs> if I travel too much or take away too many days at the weekend, you know, it does does impact on your life, that's for sure. So there have to be limits. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very keen to spread the word and, and to help encourage people to, to do the right thing and start to move the economy in a different direction. And how do people respond when they hear the evidence and the science that you present? Oh, the audiences I speak to are usually very interested. And there's a big debate around, well, how do you present this stuff? Because you can make it sound incredibly scary and almost doomsday kind of material. And and I would guess if that's all you said, then people would just kind of give up and say, well, not much we can do. We're just going to go down the tubes here. Um, but the, the point is that we do have, it's totally up to us, what, what we do with emissions, what we do with energy production, completely determines the future. So the way I like to pitch it is, yes, I talk to people about some of the scary possibilities, but then also talk about how much agency we all have to make a difference for the future. So I find usually audiences are, are pretty receptive and pretty Um, engaged in talking about what they want to do and what what their community can do to to help this problem. Occasionally I get people saying to me after I've given a talk or emailing me or whatever who are feeling quite quite despairing actually and, and pretty sad about the future and the future for their children maybe. So it is, I mean, everyone takes these things differently. I think it's important not to just paint a gloomy picture because it really is possible for us to have actually quite a bright future if we take the right action right away. Yeah. So, yeah, presenting the information but also presenting the, the possible things we can do that people can feel empowered that they can do things. I think that, that comes across pretty well. And what is the the brighter future that you can can sort of see, like, what do you think New Zealand would look like or how would it be different if we got our emissions down to net zero and we took the right actions to change our economy? Hmm, that's a good question. I I think we would move away from such reliance on private motor vehicles. Uh, We might all be driving electric cars, which would be great in itself, but... You know, New Zealand. New Zealanders are pretty much in love with their cars. I think we're second only to the U.S. in terms of number of cars per head of population, and we drive a lot. And I think we've, um, yeah, got a bit caught up in that lifestyle. We all have our quarter-acre blocks, and we live quite far from where we work, and we drive to commute, and and so on and so forth. And I, I would like to think we'd move away from that. Something to more like a, a European model where the inner city is quite densely populated and, and regular people ride bikes. You know, it's interesting. You see pictures from Copenhagen or Venice, or not Venice maybe, but <laughs> cities in Europe, and you see just sort of normal people riding their bike to work. It's not like they're all dressed up in lycra with sort of racing gear and they've got some hot bike. They're just regular people wearing regular clothes and they're sort of going about their daily business using their bicycle and walking and then going on the bus and so on. And I think we 
it would be good if New Zealand moved more towards that model and we, we did away with, with driving so much. That would be one good thing. Uh, we're already close to 100% renewable electricity. It's 80-something percent, I think. We could easily, relatively easily, get the, the last 15% and go beyond that because if we're all using these electric vehicles and things, we're probably going to need a bit more than what we call 100% electricity generation right now. But um, more wind farms, solar farms, and I'd like to think we can get some reliable tidal energy, wave energy. I know researchers at NIWA have been looking at this for a few years. There's so much energy in the oceans. The problem's actually been that the, the turbines that have been designed tend to get destroyed by the strength of the tidal currents around Cook Strait, for instance. There's, there's just so much energy there, you can't harness it. A bit like the winds around Wellington, it gets so windy sometimes they have to shut the, the wind turbines down, otherwise <laughs> they'll be damaged. So there's no shortage of, of sources of energy out there. Um, and I imagine that we will tap those more efficiently and that we will have completely renewable electricity production, completely renewable um, heating and energy production for industry. And we will live in a, a cleaner and greener world, actually. New Zealand is not that burdened with air pollution, not like some countries such as China, for instance. But even so, there are parts of the country that, at least that have that problem. A lot of places we produce a lot of air pollution but it gets blown away so we don't see it. But I think we will have better air quality around the country and actually around the world if the whole world can move in this direction. So I see it as a not only a cleaner sort of and greener future but a more connected future where um, there's more high density housing so communities sort of live closer to each other there's less long distance commuting to work and there's more, yeah, sort of sharing of spaces um, and that combination of active transport, like walking, cycling and then using buses and trains and so on. You know, people mingle more and I think you can develop more of a sense of community when people are moving around like that rather than every individual in their own car kind of thing. So we'll see how we go um, and I don't know whether, you know, the bulk of New Zealanders will want to go in that direction but oh, I would like to think we can do it I think it will be good for all of us we've got we're so close so close to having a zero carbon bill introduced to parliament um, how, how are you feeling about the um, the the climate response that we're where we're at now well, I'm feeling pretty good about the zero carbon bill being before Parliament. I, I'm also a bit nervous <laughs> about what the process is going to look like and what's going to come out the other end. I, I really hope that we get legislation that does lock in uh, net zero carbon emissions by 2050. That, that would be really in line with the latest thinking with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and stopping warming at one and a half degrees, which is... You know, that, that would be the best outcome, I think, now. We're already a little over one degree. It would be hard to stop the warming at much less than one and a half. So I think one and a half degrees is a good target. Um, would be still issues, but, but manageable ones, hopefully. And just compared to where New Zealand's been at for many years, this new legislation, it's a real step forward. 
we don't have written down exactly what we will do to get to zero carbon. That's we know a lot of the the things you know around electric transport and all that stuff. But we need the the practicalities of how do we actually do this. First of all, you get the legislation that says we're going to do it, and then we take the action. And time is short, you know. That last IPCC report said 12 years to have global emissions, so until 2030, so we're down to 11 years or 10 and a half years or whatever it is. And the longer we leave taking that action, the harder it becomes to, to achieve those sort of targets. So I'm really thrilled that we have this legislation, at least potentially, on the books. Um, but I'm very aware that the clock's ticking and we need to move as fast as we possibly can. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to be in there making a submission to make that bill um, the best that it can be? Um, yes, and I'm working with a few groups to uh, help that along. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, actually, um, people in the Ministry of the Environment and the, the Minister's Office, you know, they're pretty aware of the issues and they've been interacting with um, academics here at Victoria and, you know, um, think tanks and various people around the country so they're, they're pretty clued up but yeah I'll be trying to help it along as much as I can definitely. Great. I wanted to ask about Track Zero. Oh sure. Th this is um, uh, well why don't you explain what Track Zero is? Okay so Track Zero is a charitable trust that was set up um, a bit over a year ago. Um, Sarah Meads who's done all sorts of interesting things over time worked for Oxfam worked for various agencies. Um, it was her idea really and the, the point of Track Zero is to bring the arts and the sciences together to tell stories uh, about climate change. So the thinking is that you know climate change is a scientific problem you might say but if you want to connect with people and motivate action and help people understand what the issues are then really the arts are where it's at for connecting with people, you know, showing a graph and talking about numbers and running a model, you know, that's all very well for some people, but most people don't get it and aren't interested. But if you can um, write a book, tell a story, create some artwork, music, things that have an emotional component, you know, and you can connect with people's emotions, then you can both help them understand what you're talking about, but also help people see what these what climate change means for them and their family and their community and, and you know, why we should be taking action and what kind of action we can take. Getting to a the best possible future, we have to imagine it first. And I think, you know, imagination is what the arts are all about. So whether that's writing some novel that describes 20, 2050 New Zealand or or illustrating it with uh, artworks or who knows but having that kind of thinking on the go I think really helps people get on board with what we need to do and, and where we would like to go in the future. So how, how are you involved in in that uh, initiative? Okay so I was one of the people that uh, Sarah contacted early on um, so I'm a trustee of the Track Zero Trust and I've also been heavily involved in the activities that Track Zero has carried out so far. The main one has been a speaking tour. So I've, I've gone around the country um, over the last year or so 
along with other scientists. Um, but the, the feature has been that everywhere we've been, whether it's you know Dunedin or Nelson or Whangarei or wherever, we've linked up with the local arts community. So we've brought in two, three, four artists from those communities, and we've had a had a roundtable discussion. Basically, we've presented some of the science, and then we've heard from the artists about how they are um, presenting information on climate change or. Um, other environmental issues, just how they're using their ideas to portray aspects of these issues. And then we've had a general conversation with the audience wherever we've been, and it's been really interesting finding out from local communities what their concerns are, how they sort of express themselves around those things, and, yeah, just a general conversation about what the future could be like for whether it's the the local community in um, yeah, Whangarei or Hastings or um, sometimes we've had a more, sort of more general discussion with audiences around the, the sort of overall global picture of climate change and what it might mean for different countries and so on. So it's been just really interesting and the point there again has been to just get people thinking, thinking about what they can do locally and how they can contribute. It's neat. It's a it's a neat take on getting, um, making climate change science accessible and emotional. Exactly right. That's that's the whole point. And I, I, I think it's working. It's hard to tell what the impact is whenever you give any kind of presentation or have any interaction with a public group. Even if there's just one person who's inspired, then that's great. Um, but I think it is a, a great way to just really engage with people. That's the whole idea. Um, thanks, James, for talking to me, and um, I'm wishing a lot of power and energy into sort of the climate movement as we come close to getting a zero carbon bill and uh, shaping a, a, a cli better climate future for New Zealand. Well, great. Thanks, Laura. I couldn't agree more. And I, I really think we're, we're seeing a bit of a, a change, a bit of a tipping point in public opinion and so on, you know, the school strikes for climate and all of the activism that's happening now that just really wasn't there even two or three years ago. So I hope we see, yeah, a real acceleration of action and, and, um, and we do get to that brighter future. Awesome. Thank you. All right. Thank you. That program is brought to you by Wellington Access Radio. Get your voice heard. Thanks New Zealand On Air for funding the Access Internet Radio Project.